You may be able to tell our staff has started arriving. Guys, listen to me. Have you called your mom yet? I got one thumbs up, one shaking his head, and the other one's doing it like this. He didn't want to wake her up this morning. Now, he was here early praying. He didn't want to wake her up, so he's going to call her after lunch. Got a question for you this morning. We are studying the book of Revelation this summer, and uh, people have asked me, are you going to get through all 22 chapters? Well, were you here when we did Romans? Uh, I kind of flew through some of it, so I don't know yet whether this is going to be a two-summer adventure or uh, we're going to hit the high points. I, I'm not sure. Still praying about that because we're only going to cover seven verses. So relax. Last week we went over a little bit, right? Who was here last week? That might have been the latest that I've ever gotten you out of the chapel, other than a homecoming, perhaps. And, um, and we had trustee meeting. They didn't fuss at me or anything last week. So uh, I'll try to make, I'm going to get you out a minute early today. How about that? How many of y'all have preachers here? As soon as he takes his watch off, you know that means absolutely nothing. <laughs> but the reason that Revelation has become so important, I think not only because I believe we're living we're obviously as close to the return of Christ as we've ever been, right? But in Revelation chapter 1, it says you are blessed if you read this book and if you hear this book and if you heed this book. So if we don't read it and hear it and heed it, we're missing out on a blessing from God. And I think it's really a command that we need to study the book of Revelation. And so that's what we're doing this summer. In fact, the word revelation means something that's been revealed. And yet, for many of us, we've kind of taken this last book in the New Testament as something that's concealed that we can't figure out, can't get. And yes, there, there are a lot of imagery and words like we looked at last week, like like, that means this is as best as I can give you. John was writing and said it was like this. It's going to be a little plainer this morning because it's a letter to the first of the seven churches that he writes. And really, the question of this morning is, a question that I've asked here many times. In fact, I want to share an opening story with you that I may have shared this story here, but it fits so well, I just got to share it again. And it's the question, what is the most important thing in your life? When I was a teenager, I went to a large church in Macon, Georgia. We had a large Sunday school department. And so I think it was my eighth grade year. We had a separate department just for the eighth grade. And there were two girls classes and two boys classes. And I was, you know, used to going to Sunday school. I, I have to be honest with you. Most of the time, I could not remember after church what we had talked about in Sunday school. And so on this particular occasion, it was opening assembly time, and I'm looking around. My teacher wasn't there. Now, if you've ever, guys, if you've ever taught eighth grade boys, you know, there's days you just don't come, you know. So I got to have a break. And that wasn't terribly unusual. And what they would do in that rare event was, was they would put all the guys in one class, and the other guy teacher would teach both classes. But... On this Sunday, neither teacher showed up. I don't know what we had done the week before, whether they had quit or what was going on. But I'm sitting there thinking, if some of us are talking, neither of our teachers are here. What are we going to do during Sunday school? We came up with some great options that they obviously didn't consult with us because what they did was took all the girls, put them in one class, and all the boys took, put them in one class. And one of the girl teachers taught our class. Well, y'all, we were... We were in for a treat because the girl that was teaching our class was home from college. She was a very pretty college student, and so she had our, our attention. You know, we normally were like throwing things and spitting things and all that. We were all just sitting at the table like perfect angels. 
And she also did something interesting. She wasn't reading from the program. You know? She didn't have her head down just reading out of the quarterly. Do you all remember those? And she asked that question. She said, guys, I want to ask you a question today. What's the most important thing in your life? And I don't know how God got my attention that day, but he did because I started thinking about the most important thing in my life. I started thinking about what was it that I spent most of my time doing? What did I spend most of my time thinking about? What did I spend most of my time talking about? If you were around me for more than 20 minutes, this subject was going to come up. And for me, it was golf. And so I knew in my mind, I thought, I've missed like three days this whole summer playing golf. And I knew that it was the most important thing in my life. It's all I ever talked about. It's what I thought about. Well, she did something that we were not used to. She actually expected an answer. You know, normally they ask those questions, just get you to think about it and then go on with the lesson. She looked at the person on her left and said, how about it? What's the most important thing in your life? Guess who was sitting on her left? See, I didn't have time to hear what anybody else said. All I knew is she's looked at me and I'm on the spot and I can either say the answer she wants to hear. What's that? Jesus, right. God, or I could just tell the truth. So I just decided, I'm going to tell the truth. And I said, well, the most important thing in my life right now is golf. The youth group had gone on a youth retreat that summer. I didn't go. I stayed home and played golf. I got a hole-in-one that summer, that, that week while they were gone. And when the youth minister, they all got back, the youth minister said, well, we missed you on the retreat. And I said, well, Hank, obviously it was God's will for me to stay here. I mean, he should have slapped me, man. I mean, it's like... And I, maybe I even thought that. You know, I got a hole in one, so God obviously blessed me for not going on the youth retreat. Does it work that way? And she didn't make a comment after I said golf's the most important thing in my life. She didn't really make a comment. She just went to the next guy. His name's Rick. Rick was my best friend. Rick played baseball. Went on to play baseball in college. All Rick ever talked about was baseball. If you were around him for five minutes, the subject of baseball was going to come up. He could turn any conversation to baseball. She said, all right, Rick, what's the most important thing in your life? Guess what Rick said? Jesus. <laughs> I thought, man, you have hung me out to dry. And it went that way around the table. I mean, I knew these guys, and I knew they were lying. But God got my attention because I was a believer. I was a Christian. I prayed to ask Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. And I was, I was at church. I was involved in the youth group, except for not going on the retreat to play golf. But I left there that day thinking, something's out of balance. Now, don't answer out loud, but is there anything sinful about playing golf? Well, the way I play it is. <laughs> There's nothing sinful, so I'm not telling. Don't go, ladies, don't go out here and say, the preacher said you shouldn't be playing golf, all right? No, there's nothing wrong with playing golf. There's something wrong with anything that gets so out of balance in your life that it's the most important thing in your life. It's more important to you than God is. So we come to this passage then. This is the first of seven letters. What we saw last week is that John is instructed to write a book and to disseminate it, to, to send it out to these seven churches. Kind of go back a slide to the, to the map just to give you an idea. These are the seven churches. Do you see the one that, that are kind of in magenta or whatever that color is? Ricky, what color is that? Pink. <laughs> uh, you see Ephesus? If you see below Ephesus, let's say Ephesus, you know, go down to about 7 o'clock, see the island of Patmos. That's where John was when he wrote this. But the letters were going to go to these seven churches, and if you notice, they, in order, the way they're mentioned in Scripture, Ephesus, Smyrna, 
Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And out of these churches, because these were key centers, the letters would have spread. And some scholars think, well, these letters, these churches just really represented the church in general, or they represented church age. Some of that's a little bit true, but I believe they literally represented seven churches because of what we know going on at those seven churches and what Jesus speaks to those. These were actual real churches. But he didn't write like Paul did the letter to Ephesus. He wrote a book that was sent to all of these churches. So the people in Pergamum got to read what he was saying to all these other churches. And obviously these letters, this book has spread through Christendom and we now see it. And so we're going to look over the next few weeks at these seven churches. Most of them had problems. A couple of them really were doing okay. A couple of them had problems. And some of what you're going to see is the warnings given in the book, they didn't heed those warnings. So we come to this first church, the church in Ephesus. Let me read verses 1 through 7. Or excuse me, just 1 through Three to get us started. Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you have found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. Let me read one more verse. Verse 6. Another good thing. Yet this you do have. That you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Which I also hate. So he's named several good things about this church. Now, first of all you say. all right, What is all this imagery about the one who holds the seven stars? Well if you back up. Into verse 20. He says as of chapter 1. He says, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the church of the seven churches. The word angel also means messengers. And scholars debate, was this like a guardian angel? I think it simply meant the leadership of the church. Some of these churches had pastors. Some of them were uh, presided over by a group of elders. So the seven Golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here's what is interesting. Jesus is walking among these lampstands, and one of the things we said last week about the lampstands are, lampstands are no good without a light on them, right? You can have a lampstand at your house, but if it's dark, the lampstand does no good. There's got to be a light on it. Talk a little bit more about that later. But also in his right hand hand of power and authority he's holding i believe the ministers of these churches the messengers to the church and that's who the letter's addressed to so the good news is jesus is well acquainted with the church why because he's walking among the church this is not something he's seeing from afar off he's right there walking among them and he says this first thing that he says to this church is i know your deed the word know there is not the normal word that means a progressive knowledge, something you've learned over time. This means a full and complete knowledge. Here's what Jesus is saying. I've checked you out, church. I have watched you. I've seen your coming and going. I see what happens when you assemble together. I've seen what happens when you separate throughout the rest of the week. They were worshiping on the Lord's Day. I've seen what you're doing on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Keep in mind, this is a letter to the church, but there's going to be some personal application as well. 
So he says to the church, I've seen what you're up to. I've seen your activity. Then he says, I've seen your toil. You have worked hard. This is a word that indicates pain. It means we do whatever it takes to get the job done. This is a word of work and action. This is, when I see this, I sense the strain in it. The veins poking out in the neck and the head, the sweat of the brow. And Jesus is commendating them. He's complimenting them. He's saying, listen, I see what you're up to. Like I have the other six churches, the church at Ephesus, I would say this about you. I see your hard work. Let me back up and tell you a little bit about Ephesus. We've heard that word before, right? Paul wrote a letter to the Ephesian believers, to the Ephesian church. The church at Ephesus is the first church mentioned. It's also the most important. It's, it's probably the mother church out of which these other churches spread. Paul spent three years there, and we read about that in the book of Acts. In fact, in Acts 20, verses 29 and following, he says, I know that after my departure, listen carefully what Paul warns him about. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Hear what Paul's warning them about? You need to look out for the wolves outside the church, but I'm warning you, there's some wolves inside the church. Now, Paul warns them about that like 30 plus years before this letter's written or this book's written. So what's happened in the church in Ephesus? Paul had been there for about three years. Timothy was one of the first pastors. And Paul speaks to Timothy in 1 Timothy. He says, as I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Folks, as we unpack this letter, you're going to see this come into fruit. What Paul warned them about 30 plus years earlier was happening in the church at Ephesus. And he had warned them about it. We believe that by this time, before John gets banished to the island of Patmos, John was an elder in the church at Ephesus. In fact, we believe he wrote, and scholars believe, he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the, the little short epistles. He wrote them from there. And in 2nd John and 3rd John, he describes himself as the elder. So apparently, this is where, from this church in Ephesus, John is arrested for the faith and banished, sent over to this prison island called Patmos. We talked a little bit about that last week. And so obviously, as John is receiving this revelation from Jesus, he's thinking, wait a minute, that's a church that I love dearly. Jesus has seen their deeds, and yes, part of their deeds is this incredible toil. Now, let me make this personal for this generation. It's possible to be busy and not be doing what God wants you to do. You ever experienced that in church? As a church leader, I had people walk in my office too often and say, I'm burned out. That's an evidence of doing the toil without staying connected to the relationship with Jesus Christ. I, the one I really love is people said, I've done my time. <laughs> I didn't realize working in the nursery was a prison sentence. Done my time. I got five to seven years when I first got saved, and I'm out of that now. I'm going to sit back with the rest of the people, become a pew potato. But that was not the case for the church in Ephesus. They were not pew potatoes. They were working hard, but they had a problem. You'll see in just a minute. 
But understand, it is very possible to be doing religious things and look good on the outside and yet not be honoring God in all that activity. Somehow we think, as long as I stay busy enough for God, He'll be pleased with it. Well, I got to tell you, this church was busy for God, and He was not the least bit pleased with it. I've seen your toil. I've seen your perseverance. Literally, they, were, they had demonstrated patience in trying circumstance. In the first century, to be a believer and persevere meant that it cost you something. I think sometimes we think, well, I really persevered this week. I had a hard week and still went to church. It is a lot different for that in the first century. To be a believer in the first century could very well mean that you had been beaten, perhaps imprisoned. You perhaps had lost your family. You probably didn't even live in the place where your family had always lived. You had been chased out of those areas. And he says, I've seen your perseverance. But you stick with it. You've endured through some horrible circumstances. In fact, you cannot tolerate evil men. These people that come into your assembly and they're, they're worthless. They're depraved. Paul had warned them in Ephesians chapter 4 about that. He's like, don't give the devil an opportunity. Be careful. In fact, you need to test those who call themselves apostles. And Jesus speaking here, he said, you don't, not only do you not tolerate evil men, you test people that claim to be representing Christ. And if they're not, you found them to be false. Literally, you found them to be liars. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake. Literally, the word endure means to bear a burden. They're lifting up this burden. They have carried the cause of Christ. Now, in a good sense, John had lifted up the name of Christ and been punished for it. Apparently, in a bad sense, these people had lifted up the name of Jesus, but they were far from him. In fact, in verse 6, just to bring in the good stuff, he said, you also hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I hate their deeds. It's what Jesus said. I hate their deeds. Now, be careful to hear what he says. He doesn't say, I hate the people. But he says, I hate, I detest their deeds. Scholars debate over who these people were. But if you go back to Acts, and you see those original seven servants that were picked. One of them was Nicholas. And some scholars believe that this guy had led a group of people astray from within the church. So some good things, right? He's, he's named five things at least that, that they were doing good about. That sounds pretty good. In fact, he's ultimately going to say, I've only got one thing against you. And some of you are thinking, well, if we're grading on the curve, that's still a strong B, isn't it? I mean, I'm at least past, right? Somebody said last week, D's get degrees. I'm thinking, let's don't shoot for that. That's shooting a little low in school, all right? Maybe, maybe the church wouldn't get an A, but they'd still get a B. I mean, there's some good things going on here. The only problem is the one thing he had against them was serious. In fact, it really nullified all the other things that they had done. Let's look at verse 4. I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Literally, I have this one thing against you. You have abandoned your first love. Literally, abandoned means to send forth. It means either you have walked away or you have sent away this thing that you started with. 
And again, scholars debate over whether it was their first love for the church or their first love for people or their first love for Jesus. And you say, which is it, preacher? I would say yes. I think ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about their first love and that first love being Jesus. They had started well. They started the race in a sprint. They were doing good. But what happened was they became cold, indifferent. In fact, their, their Christian walk became one of duty instead of one of a personal relationship with Jesus where they started. Well, how does that look today? In fact, you may ask, is it possible for a church to be having church and Jesus not be at the center of the church? Yeah, we'll get to it in a few weeks. Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says to one church, I'm standing at the door knocking. You're having church, but I'm not in it. And I, re I recognize this isn't a church. The chapel isn't a church. So you go to other places. So I'm asking, examine your church. Is it a church where Jesus is at the center of it? Or is it just a church that keeps you busy? Because it's possible to stay really busy doing religious things that look good on the outside and your mama will pat you on the back for. But if the heart's been cut out of it, then it's cold. It, 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 it just kind of puts you at a place where I'm just doing this out of duty. I'm just doing my time. I hope God's pleased with it. Understand something. He's not. I have this against you. You've left your first love. Ultimately, I believe this church had abandoned Jesus. Let that sink in a minute. How does that happen? Folks, on a personal level, it happens when duty becomes more important than relationship. It can happen to preachers when all we do is study and we really don't have a, a relationship where we're speaking out of an overflow of what God's teaching us. It's just we're speaking, as some say, from a dry well. I've been there before. I've been there where Sunday morning you get up to preach and it's just you've just worked real hard to study, but you've been so busy doing things that there's not a freshness to it because your relationship with Jesus has suffered that week. Well, compound that. What if that's not just a matter of weeks anymore? It's a matter of months or maybe even years. If you can look back over your Christian life and realize, yes, there was a time in my life where I trusted Christ as my Savior. There's no doubt about it that I'm a child of God. If I were to die today, I'd go to heaven. Well, look back. Is it a matter of weeks ago, months ago, or years ago? Are you still as passionate about the things of Christ? Or have you allowed the busyness of life and maybe even the shame of people asking you to do things to just keep you busy? Somebody said, if Satan can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. This church was busy. And nothing they were doing was stuff they shouldn't do. Jesus wasn't saying, I wish you quit doing that. Jesus was saying, I wish you did it with the right motivation. I wish it was out of a, a motivation of love and not one of just duty. They had left their first love. Well, the last point, I got some good news. If I was God and I had written this letter, I would have probably said right there, okay, because of this, I'm going to obliterate you off the planet. See, there's hope in point three. And that is that Jesus gives them instructions. He gives them a warning in the midst of it, but he says, here's what you need to do. And folks, I want to make this personal for us. If you find yourself today, when I asked the question at the early, at the beginning point, what's the most important thing in your life? If you realize that it's not Jesus, if you're really honest and you realize it used to be Jesus, 
I want it to be Jesus, but right now the truth of the matter is I've allowed other things to creep in to become more important to me than my relationship with Jesus. Then do these three things that Jesus says to do. In fact, I'll make it so you can remember them. There are three R's. The first one is remember. Let's look at verse 5. John writes, Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the, deed, do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. So the first thing that they ought to do is remember. How do you do that? Well, if you've done what I asked you to do at the beginning of the message, what's the most important thing in your life? If you can remember a time when it was Jesus and there was a passion about that and it wasn't just something you said, but it was the truth and you've walked away from that, you've abandoned Christ, and maybe it's not that you're doing these bad activities. Maybe it's just you've gotten busy. But if you recognize that Jesus is over there and you're over here, let me tell you, he didn't move. He's promised he'll never leave you or forsake you. You're the one that moved or you're the one that pushed him out. So the first thing to do is remember. You really can't do the other two things if you don't acknowledge and remember where you've fallen from. So the first thing to do is remember. Second thing to do is repent. That's a scary sounding word. I used to hear that when I was a teenager. We used to have revivals that lasted a week or two at my church. And I remember some of them, you know, these flashy dressers with the flashy hair and the little napkin in their pocket and they try to break our pulpit, it seemed like, and they say that, repent! And I remember as a kid going, what does that mean? Let me tell you what the word repent means. It means a change of direction or a change of mind. It means you were walking this way, you've repented, you've turned. You've heard me tell the story. It's 180, not 360, okay? You know, I've heard teenagers share their testimony. God got a hold of my life, turned my life around 360 degrees. What does that look like? You're walking away from God, you did this number, and you're still walking away from God. All right, so we're not going for 360, we're going for 180, all right? Kind of like the bumper sticker in Gastonia. I moved here a little over 12 years ago from Gastonia. There's a bumper sticker that said, if you're on the wrong road, God allows you turns. That sounds good until you think about it. I started thinking, if you're on the wrong road and you make a U-turn, what road are you on? You're still on the wrong road. The bumper sticker should say, if you're on the wrong road, get on a different road. <laughs> or if you're traveling in the wrong direction, God allows you to turn. See, here's the problem. These people had already changed directions. They had a relationship with Christ where it was fulfilling, it was fresh, it was their first love. They were getting closer by day. Every day they were getting closer to Christ and something has happened in their life that have caused them to turn away from Him. And now He's back here. And John is saying, you need, and Jesus is saying through John, you need to repent. You need to turn back. And the scary thing about it is some of us hear this message and we think, well, I'm not doing anything bad. But you recognize you have drifted away from Jesus. And so he's calling you to repentance. And if that word sounds scary to you, it's really a good word. Because what does it indicate? It indicates another chance. It may be your second chance or it may be your fifth chance. But it's not God saying it's too late. It's God saying, church, wake up. Remember, repent. And then ultimately, return. The next thing he says is, do the deeds you did at first. Return to your first love. Isn't that good news? 
It's good news to know that a God who's just condemned them for their, losing their first love has not condemned them ultimately. He's saying, I'm offering you hope. Please turn around. Repent. But he goes on to say, anyone who has an ear, everybody touch your ear. I realize it's possible somebody can lose an ear, but doesn't everybody in here have an ear? So he's saying to the church, you got an ear, use it. Maybe the reason we got two of them and only one mouth ought to be an indication. We ought to do a better job of using our ears and less job of using our mouth. You're saying, preacher, practice what you're preaching. Okay, I'm almost done. He says to the church, if you got an ear to hear, hear. In fact, he gives them a promise at the end of that. But he says, remember, repent, and return. And then he says something interesting. He says, or else. Parents, have you all ever used that one with your kids? Clean up your room or else. I remember my dad would say that, and he never finished the or else. He never said, or else I'm going to spank you, or else I'm going to whatever. We didn't have stuff like restriction back when I was a kid. It was always spank. My dad had like one mode of operation. It was spanking. And my dad never said, clean up your room or else. I never went and said, well, give me my options. Or else what? I don't really want to clean my room up. Maybe what you're offering is not any worse than what i got to do to clean my room up. Have you seen my room? <laughs> or else. I knew what or else meant. And my dad didn't use, like, the Board of Education. He didn't use the paddle, any of that kind of stuff. He used his hand when he spanked me. And I don't ever remember getting a spanking that my brother didn't get one at the same time. And my dad talked to us while he spanked us. You're not going to do that again, are you? And you knew you didn't say, well, I didn't hear you. What? <laughs> but Jesus says, or else. And I want you to hear what he says, or else, about. He says, or else I'm coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place. And in case you're thinking, okay, what's the big deal about that? We've got to give up a lampstand? Keep in mind, the church was the lampstand. So in a church sense, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, you're one of my lampstands. I've planted you prominently in the town of Ephesus, and I am the light. I need to be prominently displayed on the lampstand of the church. What ought to be flowing out of this church at Ephesus is Jesus to the world. And yet they were just doing duty, and the light had gone out. And they needed to return to their first love and rekindle that flame so that the world would see through them Jesus. Well, we know what the warning was. Let me tell you where Ephesus is. Ephesus was in Asia Minor. Today, it is modern-day Turkey. There's 75 million people in modern-day Turkey. You know how many Christians there are there? Less than 100,000. Do that on a calculator. That's less than 1%. Jesus warned them. And I don't know what the immediate result was, but I can tell you what the long-term result was. They didn't repent. Jesus did not remain their first love. And if you go to Ephesus today, you'll find an old church building that's in ruins. You'll also find one of the old seven wonders of the world, and that was a temple to the god goddess Artemis or the Roman goddess Diana. They fell out of love with Jesus and fell, out of love, fell into love with the world. And folks, we live in a generation 
that as Paul put it in Philippians chapter 2, is dark and perverse. And he's called us to be lights in that world. And I, I can't speak to your church. I know where some of you go to church in the off-season, others of you go to the place. I, I can't speak to your church. But let me just make it personal as we close. Is Jesus Christ your first love? I'm not asking if you're religious. I'm not asking if you've got perfect attendance at church. I'm asking, is Jesus Christ the most important thing in your life? Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Take a moment when you're not looking at anybody or anything else and allow God to speak to you. At the beginning of the message, I asked the question, and so now I'm asking the question again. What's the most important thing in your life? Father, as, as we're praying, as we've bowed our heads right now, we're praying, what's the answer to that question for me personally? And God, I pray that on behalf of every person in here. What really is the most important thing in our life? And God, I pray today for some would be a wake-up call. If it's not Jesus, then God, the answer is to not pretend like it is. To not put on the church face as we walk out of here and act like everything's okay. God, the answer is to do what you asked the church to do. And that is remember. And then, Lord, to repent. God, for some in here, I pray right now, they would simply be saying, Dear Jesus, I, I've had a wake-up call today. I need to turn. I've been kind of walking in other directions. I've gotten distracted. I've gotten busy. And oh yeah, every now and then I've been doing something at church. But it's been out of duty and it's dry as dust. God, there's some in this place that they walk into worship and they think there's something wrong with the music and it's really there's something wrong with them. Would you breathe life back into the heart? And God, call us to repentance. And thank you that that is good news. And God, help us to do the things we did at first. The passion that we had when our relationship with you was new. Would you renew that in us? Would you renew within us a hunger for your word, a hunger for the things of God, and even a hunger for being with the people of God? God, thank you ultimately for the blessing that you give us the right, the privilege one day to eat of the tree of life. Thank you, Jesus. We pray that.